Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have Chef Bobby Matos from State of Grace coming up in just a little bit. But first, I am joined by, well, if I, if I called him my favorite co-host, I would offend the other co-hosts, but my good friend, local restaurant consultant, Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Let's dive right into the news of the week. Probably two closings, I think, have dominated uh, the recent conversation on culture map certainly the the recent page views on culture map um the first which just came out sunday night is that mark holly has decided to close holly's his upscale seafood restaurant in midtown holly's had some damage to its building after hurricane harvey that closed it for a couple of weeks and mark told me in an email that that is what the, the financial burden of being closed for an extended period of time was too much for them to bear. And that's why he made the decision to close. Nathan, have you dined at Holly's? Do you have do you have an impression of Holly's of where it fit in the culinary scene? You know, I haven't been to Holly's in probably too long, which I guess, you know, leads to this issue. Um, you know, he can blame me, I guess. But uh, it was a good restaurant. Uh, I felt like it was um, something that belonged in the Houston food scene. Obviously, several you know people really loved Pesce, and it was a a really you know signature thing in the Houston food scene for a really long time. It was something that was really beloved. So when uh, you know that closed and he went out on his own to open something, it was really something that, uh, I looked forward to. Uh, when it opened, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I never tried the fried chicken nights. Uh, the Sunday fried chicken for uh, I believe fifty dollars, but I heard they were great. It was it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You, you've tried the uh, the cast iron fried uh, fried chicken, but um, you know the the food was great. There's just been so many new restaurants opening in the city. I think that uh, kind of overshadowed a little bit, but he's an incredibly talented chef, and I, I'm sure he will land somewhere really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, Mark is someone who's who's a very popular figure. He, of course, he's been involved in. He used to restaurants for a long time. He worked at Brennan's back in the day when, you know, Randy Evans and Chris Shepard were running around as sous chefs. Peche, as you said, was a very popular restaurant. And and I, I've seen a lot of um a lot of hurt feelings about the fact that Holly's is closed. That's been kind of the dominant theme of the the comments both on the Holly's Facebook page and on the, the Culture Map article about it. You know, I, I feel like maybe, you know, I feel like maybe there's the potential for Mark Holly to do kind of what John Sheely has done, close Mockingbird Bistro, reopen at Lowbrow, where you can still do a version of your food in a more casual setting and at a lower price point. You know, I would love to see Mark kind of slim things down, focus on some of the best dishes from, from Holly's and then you know, with a, in a smaller space with less overhead in a more casual environment. Yeah, I'd agree. I think uh, the kind of lumbering giant scenario with a lot of a lot of restaurants is definitely something that happens. You have these, you know, huge overheads, kind of a, a, a fancy, whether or not the restaurant itself is fancy, people view it 
as too fancy, too expensive to go out. And that's something that a lot of these uh, new restaurants get to take advantage of. While the the menu prices might not be any different, the environment that they that they create and that they cater to uh, make people feel like they're not spending as much money. That they're not, you know, that the whole concept and uh, that it's not a, a you know it's just a night out. It's not a it's not a special occasion restaurant. So even though they're spending the same PPA or per person average, it's not it's not a uh, anniversary restaurant or birthday restaurant so um, a lot of new restaurants have really taken advantage of that so I think uh, that would be a really smart idea for him to open a smaller slim down menu keep his food costs down um, do some of his really special dishes do a uh, you know more normal price fried chicken perhaps and then um, really I, I would think it'd be great yeah so we'll see what the future holds I, I've certainly uh, I've I've told Mark, you know, whenever he's ready to talk about whatever's next, when he, when he figures that out, I will be happy to listen to him. Uh, the other big closing this week is that Molina's Cantina, one of Houston's oldest restaurant names, if not necessarily one of its oldest locations, is closing its Washington Avenue, or has closed its Washington Avenue store. After 10 years, they cited the rising cost of rent, the limited parking, and the desire to open uh, a new location out in the Katie Fulcher area. That's where they think their future lies. I mean, I'm always more of like a 80s, 90s Tex-Mex, right? Fajitas, you know, fajitas more than like 50s, 60s Tex-Mex with cheese enchiladas and chili gravy. So Molina's was never a big destination for me, but I know it's, I know it remains a very popular restaurant. Let me, let me, let me ask you, let me, let me ask it to you like this. We've seen a lot of restaurants cite the rising cost of rent as a reason to close. What's your assessment of that trend? Is that something you expect to continue? For sure. Um, the rent was already, uh, to quote the gentleman from Brooklyn, the rent is too damn high. The The rent is high in Houston for restaurants. Uh, retail is high, but restaurants are getting kind of the, the sharp end of the stick on the the rent here in Houston. Um, and it hurts that that if you don't have a, a, a stair step built into your lease, that uh, that renewal rate can just put you out of business. You know, if you're paying uh, 15 grand and they decide to raise your rent to 30 grand, that extra, you know, 150, 100, whatever thousand dollars a year can be your entire profit margin um, or more. So that that would be pointless to stay open. And already, um, so many restaurants have signed leases within the past five years um, that they're already paying exorbitant amounts of rental rates. So if they need to pay any more whenever their renewal comes up, it's just not possible to to make money at that point. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more. I think um, as uh, as people are going to be coming up with renewals uh, tied in with this Harvey issue, people are closed for you know a few weeks, a month. And they they're missing that income from that time. It's going to be hard for them to come back. Um, I think we'll, we're going to see some more issues. So you think that the you know Mark Holly cited uh, a business disruption caused by Hurricane Harvey, and then damage to the space that triggered his decision to close. So you you feel like there's probably that that this so Harvey the the immediate loss of business from Harvey that cost restaurants a couple of weekends. And then the continuing loss of business is people dine out less while they spend their what what would have been their disposable income for dining on rebuilding their homes 
and maybe giving to charity to help other people rebuild their homes. You think that's going to have, we're going to see more closings before the end of the year. I think we'll see some. I, I hope it's not as, uh, as bad as it could be. Um, you know, obviously it could be really bad. Um, a lot of restaurants don't have loss of interruption um, insurance so that the few weeks to a month that they're closed, they're, they're, they won't get any income back from their insurance. And the ones that do um, could have a really hefty... Um, oh, deductible. Yeah, a really hefty deductible to, uh, to cover. The, the whole situation, no matter what, um, even the restaurants that weren't closed have to deal with the lack of uh, service, the lack of people coming. I've talked to several restaurants around town that are that are down anywhere from fifteen to fifty percent. Um, thirty twenty five to thirty percent seems to be standard. I've talked to some that, that have no uh, interruption at all. They seem to be back to normal. So it really seems to be all across the board. Um, but I mean, I, I've tried to go to Costco uh, on on Saturday for about the past three weeks, and I haven't been able to get in the door. It is so busy. It, uh, to me, it seems like people are just stocking up on groceries because they're staying at home, they're cooking, um, they're preparing for the next, you know, natural disaster that they feel is coming, uh, and they're they're just not going out. Whether whether or not these are people whose homes were destroyed, um, or people who are giving to charity, or people who are just paranoid, um, I don't know. But I think it'll take a few months for it to get back to normal, and whether or not you know. Restaurants operate on a razor-thin margin in the first place. so Right. And they're going to rely on a boost during the holiday season that may not be as substantial as they expect it to be. So, I mean, this could be a tough end of 2017 for the restaurant community. Yeah. Um, it's really going to depend on how well the corporations come out and and do their, their company parties this year. So if the companies are still going to spend their money and book Christmas parties and go out and spend money, then that'll help a lot of restaurants. Of course, that's only a, a certain amount of restaurants that have private rooms, do corporate parties, which which is a very small portion of restaurants. So um, the rest of the restaurants, the, the small restaurants, the fast casual ones, um, the family restaurants, they're still going to need people to go out and celebrate with family and friends and, you know, do their December dining uh, to get that that end of year bump to help them pay bills, a lot of uh, a lot of restaurants go into debt and try to pay it off at the end of the year. Uh, frankly, a lot of restaurants do the same thing for uh, um, for Houston Restaurant Weeks. They go into debt and they they try to use Houston Restaurant Weeks to get the um, get them the extra cash to to pay that off. Um, which is sometimes why you see a lot of uh, closings right after Houston Restaurant Weeks because they don't get enough money. Uh, after through Houston Restaurant Weeks to pay off the debt, so they have to close. Uh, but I'm hoping that it won't be as bad and that we're going to normalize. The city seems to normalize more every day, so um, the quicker the city normalizes, the better for for everyone, the restaurants. Um, but, you know, frankly, just, just go out to eat, tip your servers more than they deserve. Right, I mean, we say this all the time. If you have a restaurant that you like and you haven't been there in a while, Now's the time. They they probably miss you more than you miss them, and this is the time to open the wallet and spend a little extra cash if you can, you know, if you can afford it. All right, I don't want to get, I don't want to be all doom and gloom today because we do have uh, a new restaurant that I'm actually pretty excited about. Christopher Wong, the owner of Ninja Ramen, 
on Washington Avenue has announced that he will open a pho shop in the Garden Oaks Oak Forest area called Flying Pho. Yes, the pun is intentional. We'll get to that in just a second. As the name implies, Flying Pho will have a delivery component. It is, and and of course, just like Ninja Ramen doesn't serve the same style of tonkatsu that every other ramen shop serves, Flying Pho is going to serve Hanoi-style pho, which is a, a lighter broth, a less spiced, like it doesn't have the cinnamon and the star anise. It's not quite as sweet. It doesn't have as many kinds of meat or the big plate of herbs and veggies that no one ever uses. Uh, Chris is going to focus on filet mignon as the only meat in his pho. I really enjoy ninja ramen. Are you a ninja ramen person? Have you ever been to ninja ramen? I have been a few times. I thought it was, I thought it was good. Okay. Are you excited about flying pho? I am. Uh, main thing that uh, gets me is the not-as-sweet line. Vietnamese food in Houston, I'm a huge fan of Vietnamese food in Houston, but I will say that uh, a lot of it strikes me as on the sweeter end of the palate. Yeah, and I think that's something Chris is aware of. And apparently this Hanoi-style pho has been fairly successful on the West Coast in L.A. and in the Bay Area. It hasn't come to Houston yet, so I think that's interesting. And, of course, the the obvious pun, I don't give a flying pho. Chris is going to turn that around with his I do give a flying pho program that will allow diners to donate roughly the cost of a bowl, three bucks, four bucks. He hasn't quite figured out the pricing yet. And then at the end of the week, however many bowls people donate, they will make that and then donate it to a shelter or uh, some other facility that benefits the less fortunate. I think that's. I think that kind of charitable component is interesting too. I like that. It's a uh, pay it for uh, several pizza places throughout the country do that. You know, donate a slice, buy a slice. So that's, that'll be really interesting to be able to do that with a, a bowl of pho, which through the you know through the winter would be a really nice thing to do. So right, and he's uh, he's working on some software so that you'll be able to text send nudes and o o d s, <laughs> and they will they will input your delivery order. Uh, it's the only time that phrase has been used in a in a positive context, I suppose. Well, depends on what your what your uh, definition of positive is. I suppose so, but that's probably not something that two men in a small room together should dwell on. Yeah, um, I'm married too, so sorry, honey. <laughs> All right, and then uh, one other interesting piece of news: uh, foreign and domestic, a, a very popular. A uh, very acclaimed restaurant in Austin. The owner, Ned Elliott, has been talking about opening in Houston uh, roughly since the day he opened in Austin. I've I've done interviews with him about it. I've seen interviews other places. He's finally making some progress on that. Uh, Eater Austin had a story. He has sold foreign and domestic to a couple of chefs that used to work for him. He is so that he can open foreign and domestic in his hometown of Cincinnati. And then a location in Houston. He's got his eye on Bel Air. Uh, Nathan, I know you're an F and D fan. What? How good is this news for Houston? That this that it finally seems like uh, Ned is going to walk the walk instead of just tweeting about it. Well, we'll see if he actually opens first before I start proclaiming it really great news. Since he since he's he's said he was going to open so many times, but if he actually opens in Houston, I'll be ecstatic. Uh, I, I the restaurant's great. It's really innovative. Uh, the food's really cool. The pricing is great. Um, 
it's a it's a restaurant Houston needs, and it's a restaurant that Austin didn't deserve. I think. <laughs> yeah. It. It. I mean, how would you describe it as sort of creative, European inspired? I mean, I I remember having one of the best sweetbread dishes I've ever had there. They had the gigantic popovers. But they do, I mean, they do dollar, they do dollar oyster nights. They've done brunch off and on. They've done a pretty good fried chicken. It's just, it's a, it's a place where kind of no matter what's on the menu, you can walk in and feel like it's going to be like at worst a B plus. Yeah. I think it was just whatever the hell he wanted to cook using his really ridiculous pedigree and his abilities. Um, I do remember, uh, this is kind of a anecdote to explain why he wanted to open in Houston. Um, this was Shortly, maybe 2010-ish, I really don't remember the year, uh, they had started getting some, you know, definitely social media love, uh, some uh, critic love. A lot of people from Houston were driving up to go try them, go to the weekend, spend a weekend in Austin, go specifically to try F&D. My wife and I drove up there. We went to F&D. We're uh, sitting at the counter. We ordered. Uh, Ned walks over and goes, hey, are you guys from Houston? And we just look at him and we're like, yeah, how'd you know? Oh, we could tell by how you order. None of these Austin people order anything good. They all order the boring stuff. Everybody orders good stuff from Houston. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is, I mean, there was, I, I don't know if it's still true because I, I think uh, I think maybe Bon Homie, Philip Spears restaurant has usurped it. But there was a period of time when, when at least for my friends that I follow on Twitter and Instagram, that, that when they went to Austin, they always went to f and and I don't I don't know if it's still that way, but but for a certain segment of of really hardcore people who are really passionate about seeking great dining experiences, that was the Austin restaurant to visit. And so it's always kind of made sense that he would open here. And now it seems like at least there's progress in that direction. We'll we'll see where he actually signs a lease. I I you know I would. I would love to uh, know more about where exactly in Bel Air he thinks he thinks F and D is going to work. I, but that is kind of an interesting neighborhood now, right? Bernie's Burger Bus has had a had a good run there. Uh, Blood Brothers Barbecue is going to open there sometime by the end of the year, hopefully. So maybe Bel and and it's and it's close to everything, right? You're close to the Galleria. You're close to Rice Village. If he can make that work, if he can draw people, and even in from you know sugarland and the southwest side i mean it could be an interesting spot for him yeah saltillo's over there um yeah i i think the location will be good over there if the the rent is not outrageous it's one of the few parts of the cities where you can say that um i think it's a, a good smart area he opens his restaurants for um not a lot of money which i think is very smart um I think it'll do well. Uh, he should have a strong enough following to to hit it off strong and then to to build it up kind of organically after that. So I, I think it'll be smart. He's going to open up uh, his Cincinnati. It's kind of home hometown area first. Yep, so that's it's where really, he's from. Really going to depend on how that goes, whether or not he actually opens in Houston. All right. So that remains to be seen. I think that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? For our restaurant of the week, I have to admit, I am I am super excited to talk about this place because the first public announcement that this restaurant was happening occurred on this very podcast way back in May. 
You're so special. I feel very special. Talking about Oxbow 7, Brian Caswell's new restaurant. It just opened in the Le Meridian Hotel downtown. Brian, of course, is a very well-traveled, very well-pedigreed chef. We know him from Reef. We know him from El Real Tex-Mex. We know him from Little Bigs. This is his first restaurant working with his wife, Jennifer, alongside. And without his longtime business partner, Bill Floyd, who is currently working with Jim Crane to manage Patente and Oso and Cristal at the Italian restaurants downtown. Nathan, I'm just going to throw it over to you. What did you think of Ox- of Brian Caswell's, quote, elevated Bayou cuisine, end quote, at Oxbow 7? Uh, I think the easiest way to say it was I thought it was stupidly good. Um, it was really good. It was surprisingly good. Uh, I guess it wasn't really a surprise because, uh, you know, Brian Caswell has always been a great chef, but he hasn't really focused and created anything new in years since uh, I think we discussed it since Stella Sola. Yeah. I mean, this is his first new, like, chef driven concept since Stella Sola opened back in. You know, I have this right in the article and then I didn't look it up before we stepped in the studio today, but let's say 2008. And. You know, obviously, I mean, Reef has been successful to the extent that it can be difficult to update it, right? People, it has, it has a very devoted clientele. They want certain dishes, certain kinds of experiences when they go to Reef. So if the menu hadn't changed maybe as often as Brian might have intended it to when he opened, I think that's the reality of running a restaurant that's been pretty successful for 10 years now. Yeah, whenever something's popular and it sells, you can't take it off the menu because then somebody's going to get mad at you and complain and then they won't come back. So, That's, Right. So it becomes kind of a, a cruise ship or a, a tanker, right? It's hard to change the direction of a big boat like that. Yeah, I don't think Brian wants you to call it a cruise ship. but Probably not. <laughs> but, but Oxbow 7 represents a fresh start. And I think what's interesting is that Brian, who in some ways was one of the first chefs to really embrace local ingredients, especially local seafood, you know, pulling, he kind of was one of the chefs who led the bycatch movement, which isn't even really a movement anymore. It's just kind of the way we do business now with using fish that maybe, you know, it doesn't just have to be snapper and redfish. You can use other species. You can, you can pull more deeply from what the Gulf has to offer. He's just kind of doing his thing. I mean, I'd say that the best dish, well, we can argue about what the best dish was, but I think my favorite dish was what he called uh, the Castanet Bun Ryu, which was a, a Vietnamese-inspired soup with a crab broth and then like a crab cake of raw crab and tomato with some shrimp, and then they pour the broth over it when it hits the table. Just an incredible depth of flavor and textures that really shows he's still very much at the top of his game. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was everyone's favorite dish. We're not, there's no argument there. It also had a, a tamarind chili plate, tamarind chili paste on it. Um, that really kind of added this extra dimension to it, bringing, um, kind of like a Vietnamese Asian flavor to it. Um, really, really enjoyed that dish. I think that was easily the favorite of the night for the whole table. Yeah. The, the other dish we ordered was something that he, 
That night he called crispy potato salad, but which he has since changed to East Texas caviar service. It's it's potato chips, ghost pepper caviar, sauce grabiche. I feel like maybe there was one other component. But I mean it's an incredible dish, right? You get you get crunchy salty from the potato chip, you get kind of creamy from the sauce, and then those little uh, ghost pepper caviar just you get like this little spicy pop. Yeah, spicy salty pop. It was a uh... Very addicting. I really wanted a, a a beer, kind of a light beer to go with that. Watch some sports and feel very fancy. Yeah, I I could see it going well with a bottle of champagne. Yeah, still want to watch sports while I eat it though. It just... I mean that's fine. And and the nice thing about the space is that it has the bar. You know, it's you know the the restaurant serves two purposes, right? If if you are a Houstonian who likes ambitious restaurants, you should be going there. If you happen to be a guest at the La Meridian. It's your hotel restaurant. So there were, you know, we got there. We had kind of a late reservation. We were lingering. We would see the guests come in from wherever they had been out, and they would just stop at the bar and have a beer, a glass of wine, maybe a snack, maybe a dessert, and watch, I think it was the Astros or Monday Night Football or whatever it was on TV. So it's serving kind of dual purposes, which I think is interesting. And, and we, don't, we don't really have a lot of that in Houston. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a it's a hotel restaurant, but it's first floor. You can directly walk into it. There's no lobby to walk through. The lobby's on the second floor at the Meridian, which I think is really unique. Um, but it, it helps the restaurant a lot more that you don't have to walk through a lobby and and uh, you know do the whole like, oh, where's the restaurant? Is it is it a restaurant? Is a lobby kind of awkwardness? Um, I believe at least that night the valet was comped. Uh, I think the valet is complimentary for restaurant diners, I think. I don't know if that's like just for the beginning or if that's permanent. Yeah, the at least in the beginning it was. If, it, if that is a, a thing they are doing, that is a big uh, step up compared to some of the other restaurants. I believe Zochi, it's $7 for the restaurant. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and we should explain that this... Uh, it's located at San Jacinto and Walker, which is right in the heart of the Central Business District, uh, very close to the shops at Houston Center, very close to where Phoenicia is, very close to Discovery Green and House of Blues and Reserve 101 and Pappas Brothers Steakhouse. So you feel very much like you're in right in the middle of downtown, uh, no more so than when you go up to Hogbirds, which is the, the rooftop bar that's not quite ready yet, but which they let us kind of stand on and look at. What was your impression of standing on the roof looking at the skyline? Because I was, I was pretty blown away by it. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, we discussed this yesterday. I actually told you that uh, hanging out on a patio in downtown is one of my favorite ways to hang out in a patio. So if that bar had been open yesterday, that's where I would have wanted to hang out with this beautiful weather we're having. Um, it's a, it'll be a really cool, cool place. You know, they have the bar that they're setting up. I can see... You know, some bartenders kind of holding court, just, you know. Yeah, and they've hired uh, Judith Piotrowski, who I first met when she was at Weights and Measures. She uh, had a brief stint at Pax Americana and Zim's and then uh, opened Bayou and Bottle in the Four Seasons. So, you know, she's got that kind of big personality, that dynamic presence. I think she's really going to find a home at Hogbirds, and, and I can't wait to be sipping cocktails with Judith under the stars. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that comment. But the uh, the drinks that we did have at Oxbow 7 were very good. We're very balanced, not sweets, 
uh, kind of had some earthy flavors to them. I, I enjoyed uh, my pearl necklace. No, it wasn't that. Uh, I, I won't say that on the radio. Um, something necklace. E- e- either Edith's necklace, I believe is what it was called. It was very good. Uh, I'll scratch out what I uh, accidentally said earlier. Uh, All right. Well, I think we are running low on time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up. Like I'm gonna wrap it up there. Uh, don't call it comeback for Brian Caswell, but definitely do go to Oxbow Seven. Uh, so that does it for our restaurant of the week, and we'll be right back with Bobby Matos from State of Grace. So stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. Our interview this week is brought to you by our friends at Eighth Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. I mean, you can find Eighth Wonder on tap walls and on store shelves all over the city, but there is something really special about visiting the brewery, whether it's for a soccer game or a baseball game. You know, certainly with the local baseball team in the playoffs, it's, it's going to be an exciting fall here in Houston, and there's really no place better to go before a game than 8th Wonder Brewery. You can have a couple of pints, maybe AstroTurf, their dry-hopped cream ale that's new and in stores, or maybe their Side Hustle, which is a barrel-aged version of Haterade, their Goza. And of course, one of the fun things about going to 8th Wonder's Brewery is that you have the Eatsy Boys food truck there. They have a new menu full of all sorts of new things to try. And just recently, they added David Attic's 36-foot-tall statues of the Beatles. John, Paul, George, and Ringo rendered in concrete in their Sgt. Pepper gear. And if you're a real Beatles fan, you'll notice that they're not positioned as they would have been on stage. I think that may be done just to infuriate hardcore Beatles fans, or maybe it's an accident, I don't know. But definitely check out 8th Wonder. Have a beer, have a bite from the Itzy Boys, and enjoy this uh, fall weather that we all know is right around the corner. Thank you to 8th Wonder, and here is our interview of the week. I am joined this week by Bobby Matos, the executive chef of State of Grace. Bobby, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, Doing good. Doing good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Let's, uh, I mean, I want to get into everything about State of Grace, but but I do kind of want to start at the beginning. Uh, You grew up in California, right? Yep. Uh, Southern California, kind of a little bit all over the place, but all over Southern California, I guess. How did you make your way to Texas? How does anyone move to Texas? Women. <laughs> uh, my wife uh, didn't drag me here per se, but I met her in San Diego and ended up, uh, we were engaged for about a year. We finally got married and, uh, uh, sorry, we were doing long distance, uh, ended up moving out here. And then did you did you start, was your first Houston restaurant Brennan's or was it? Uh... Yeah, you got it right. It was uh uh, I worked with Danny Trace to reopen Brennan's after Hurricane Ike. Right. Yep. And then you did you go straight from Brennan's to Chow Bello? There's a brief uh, intermezzo at Cafe Bello when, ah. that, when that was around. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that Tony Tony Valone's Montrose party spot. Who, I can't imagine why that that didn't last. <laughs> but uh, but I think I think Chow Bello is is where I first met you. You know, that restaurant had, you know, it was kind of the spiritual successor to Grotto, but it hadn't really caught on. There's a really memorable Allison Cook review where she just rips that place apart. Oh, yeah. That was a pre, 
pre-me. Yes. Thank God. Well, but that that's the point, right, is that you kind of came in there and, and kind of got it got it ship shape and, and made it a, a restaurant that people were talking about. I think that's when, I think we even nominated you for a, a culture map tastemaker award for some of the work you did there. Yeah, I believe so. It was a, I mean, it was a, it was a fun time there. We uh, put a lot of hard work into the place and just uh, kind of grassroots effort of just digging in and uh, putting out good food every day and, you know, trying to bring customers back. Yeah. And I think there's, I mean, Houston has always kind of had a market for, not casual, but not very fancy kind of middle Italian restaurants that serve like solid food at a reasonable price. And I mean, you know, the entire Carabas empire is sort of built on that. I think there's definitely a place uh, for that casual. It's almost like Calatal, not what we did there, but uh, there's, you know, people like the affordability of Italian food like that. Uh, there's not, there's definitely not enough of it here in Houston, I think. At least good quality. Right. I mean, just think about how, I mean, North is North is kind of like the, the national version of that. And they're killing it in the Galleria just because it's, it's like, it's, it's never bad. Like it's, it's, it's anywhere yeah, from like consistent. pretty good to very good. Prices are reasonable. The atmosphere is good. And that restaurant's just busy all the time. Yeah. And they, they, I think they definitely attracted a much younger client, uh, clientele, I should say. Yeah, there's something about the atmosphere that's lively, that's sort of welcome. But how did you how did you become aware of the state of grace opportunity? How did you how did you make the decision that that your time at Chabello had come to an end and you were ready for something new? Uh, honestly, it was, it was a pretty quick process. Uh, I got a phone call or maybe even a text message from Justin Yu saying uh, Ford Fry was in town and uh, he was looking for a chef, and if I wanted to meet up and say hi. So we ended up having a beer, and uh, that was kind of it. You know, it was uh, it was kind of like a, you know, do you want to do this or not do this? So I flew out to Atlanta, did a tasting, and, uh, yeah, the rest is history. How much did you know about Ford when you sat with him for that beer? Honestly, very little. It was kind of – it was such a quick, uh, quick meet-and-greet uh, I definitely did a little research real quick, but uh, I didn't really know that much, to be honest. You know, besides, I you know I knew his name and I knew of a few of his restaurants. So, what were your? So you you go to Atlanta to to do the tasting and kind of meet his crew. What what were your impressions of of his Atlanta operation? Because we we should explain that there's like nine Ford Fry restaurants like in Atlanta. A I think. Dozen, I think we're on on thirteen. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's growing quickly. Uh, my my first uh, impression, I was I was took back. I couldn't believe the uh, the organization and the the thoughtfulness put behind everything uh, they did over there, from the uh, from the actual organizational standpoint to the actual that that was even portrayed into the restaurants. I mean, the restaurant we did a tasting in uh, Saint Cecilia, it was the closest thing I've seen to a um, New York style kitchen uh, uh, brigade uh, that I've ever that I've seen in a long time. And then, when did you? How long did you? Sorry, I, I have six versions of this question in my head. <laughs> what was the process of developing the opening menu for State of Grace like? How much of it? How much influence did you have? How much of it was Ford's idea? And then I know he's got a culinary director who I'm sure had. 
some thoughts too. We actually have uh, three culinary directors now. Uh, one is more on the Tex-Mex side and then two that are uh, the rest of the concepts. Uh, but yeah, no, it was kind of, I made another trip out to Atlanta uh, after I'd signed on with them and we kind of dug our heels in and started uh, developing the menu and there was uh, definite ideas and direction from uh, Ford where we wanted to go at the, the restaurant and to be honest, I thought it was, I was like, this is nuts. We're all over the board. Uh, it's, there's no rhyme or reason or, um, uh, specific direction. It was just a little bit of everything. And then we kind of narrowed it down from there, uh, and got our own feeling into it, I should say. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are things about state of grace that if I, if I say, oh yeah, they do a little text packs, like they've got an enchilada and they make their own tortillas. And they've got this great, really beautiful oyster bar and this wood-burning oven that they... And, oh, by the way, they make pastas. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like any <laughs> of it goes together. And, yeah. And, yeah, it's uh, that's kind of the hardest uh, thing. Everyone, if I meet a stranger, they always ask, what kind of food you do there? And it's like, impossible to explain. Uh, I, I mean, I have, even in, even in writing about it, it's something I've struggled with. I, it's sort of a nostalgic inspired take on modern Houston dining, right? It's because Ford grew up in Houston. Yeah. So yeah. he has his memories from like going to Felix for queso. So you got, you got that a little bit. He's a, he's a fisherman. So you got some, some coastal stuff, but then, I mean, like the pastas I suspect are, are pretty much you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say we try to keep the, especially the pastas very, um, not I wouldn't say traditional, a uh, little twist and technique put into uh, something that's approachable for the customers. Uh, but that's that's our whole goal is you know really approachable food and stuff that is uh, recognizable and just really our whole the the only one thing we have uh, I I really insist we stick by is just doing food that we would all like to eat and that the customer would like to eat. You know we try not to get too too chefy with things because uh, you know sometimes chefs can like to throw uh, ingredients that they would love to eat. But honestly, most of the co- most customers here in Houston especially don't you know, want to eat uh, sweetbreads and uh, stuff like that all the time. <laughs> right. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been almost two years since you opened. And two I just years, remember yeah, it was like a total madhouse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was uh, crazy, <laughs> were you, least. Were you prepared for that or, or were you sort of surprised no we were prepared for it from the get-go um definitely uh prepared as much as we could be uh as you know this city um there's definitely a lack of culinary talent um so we we prepare as much as we could as hard as we could it means uh generally it means myself and my sous chefs working a lot of hours to to keep up um and to try to train um our and i'm, I'm really insistent on training people up from the bottom uh i don't really hire in people that um are just kind of culinary guns because they never seem to last uh so we're, we we put a huge emphasis on training from from the bottom up in the get-go and, and i still have 60 to 70 percent of our staff opening staff so i mean that's nathan i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna look at you that's basically that's, that's, unheard of that's pretty impressive in houston yeah. especially right now when Everyone yeah. is hiring. You know, our, our, we have we have an amazing company, and that kind of goes back to your previous question. Uh, the company in, in Atlanta and our our headquarters uh, they do amazing things for Hurricane Harvey. 
They raised over $19,000 to uh, give to our employees, our seven employees that were affected uh, by the floods. Uh, they also they paid for all our hourly employees' uh, time lost, they even averaged out their tips uh, for tipped employees and, and paid them for that time. Uh, so it's a really incredible company, and, uh, you know, we like to encourage that growth. And that's, you know, that by doing things like that uh, throughout our company, it, it keeps people around, and it's a, it's a great tool to have in our, in our bag. You treat your employees nice. You treat them right. You train them. You, you know, you put them in better positions. You put them in positions to succeed, and they'll, they'll treat you right too. That's for it's sure. It's a really, really good thing to do. That is for sure. So how would you say the restaurant has evolved? I mean, what are you – what are you doing now, two years in, that you weren't doing when you first opened? Uh, as far as what we what we do now, we, we really we're really focusing on not being, not getting caught up in uh, trends. Just putting out, you know, we're really focused on uh, diving into our customers and and we have databases backed up what what our customers like how you know we see we're seeing a lot of repeat customers you know two or three times a week uh, we spend a lot of time on that service front with that and then we do in the, the back of the house it's a lot of just grinding away every day making sure we're putting putting out the best food we can and you know there's a lot of as you know that's your job to keep up with all the the new restaurant openings um, and it's it's just a lot of competition and uh, with that it makes us uh, digging harder and and try to be the best restaurant we can every single day and just just uh uh cook from our hearts i mean i i think one of the things i really like about state of grace is that when you say every day you really mean it yep. right lunch and dinner five days every a week day. uh, well yeah no saturday right not on saturday sorry you're getting uh there. but you're you're right your dinner only on saturday that's like a, you know you get like a little bit of a break yes but then like brunch and dinner uh brunch and dinner on sunday too so I'm I'm not surprised that you see people multiple times a week because you give people within the within the four walls like so many different possibilities. You can you can go in for oysters at the oyster bar and a beer or a glass of wine. You can sit down for just a casual lunch, or you can you can hang out at the chest counter and bang out six courses uh, right in front of the hearth. And I think I think that kind of diversity is one of the things that kind of sets State of Race apart. Yeah, for sure. The we counted the other day. I think it was five or six different, not including the chef's counter. I guess six different menus we put out a week uh, with uh, Sunday brunch and Sunday supper included, which is two different menus in the same day. Um, but yeah, we you know we try to make it a neighborhood restaurant. That's always been the goal: a neighborhood restaurant where people could uh, visit and do that very thing. You know, come and just have a couple oysters and a glass of wine. You know, before they pick their kids up at school or. Uh, you know, dig into a really elegant dinner, um, tasting menu, even if, if you prefer. Yeah. I know Nathan and I attended the Sunday supper a couple of months ago. How is that program going? Cause I, I really like it. Uh, 29 bucks, three courses, casual food, four courses, right? Four. Yeah. You get yeah, the biscuit salad, uh, choice of entree sides and dessert. Right. Yeah. Four, five, four, yeah. Whatever. Right, right. Oh, it's, it's a lot of food. It's a lot of, <laughs> lot of it's a lot of food for not a lot of money, and a really good biscuit, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Have people embraced it? How's that going? Uh, yeah, it's it. It was steadily climbing. Uh, Sunday's a tough day, especially in uh, River Oaks. I think uh, Sunday night, I should say. Um, 
but it, I don't I don't know. I mean, all the maids are off. Like you would think that people would. <laughs> Who's cooking for themselves in River Oaks? I, th- I think a lot of people are still driving back from their uh, lake houses and uh, ranches. Fair enough. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, no, the uh, Sunday Supper has been great. Uh, it's It was growing quite substantially uh, till Hurricane Harvey, uh, and it's been a bit of a struggle to get it back up. You know, we're doing 100 people a night, but we'd like to be doing around 200. Uh, but it's, a, it's such a great way to dine, uh, especially on a Sunday when you don't, you know, you don't want to prepare food. You don't. You know, you have your kids. You don't have any groceries left. You know, you're waiting till Sunday to go to the gro- grocery or Monday to go grocery shopping. Uh, and twenty nine bucks, you can you can pretty much feast and take have plenty of food probably to take home for leftovers. And then the other the other question, and, and I and I know I already touched on this just a little bit, but you worked very closely with with Ford and the guys in Atlanta to develop the menu. Are they more hands off now, or is there are they still pretty involved in kind of the day to day operations? Um, no, I wouldn't say the day to day. We definitely, we definitely are in contact with uh, you know headquarters per se uh, fairly often. Uh, but as far as food goes, you know Ford's given me what's great about Ford is he he designs the restaurant, shows you which way you wanted to go. As long as you're staying in those parameters and like really pushing the food and uh, putting out good products, it, it doesn't matter what you do. So I get pretty much free range to, to grow uh, the restaurant in, in what direction we feel. As long as, you know, it's, we're, we're keeping it true to who we are. Right. And it's got to help front of house-wise that you're working with a guy like Matt Crawford. Yeah, Matt's great. Very, very intelligent, intelligent guy. Yeah, and I, I someone who who didn't have the re- obviously moved here from Atlanta to help open the restaurant kind of brought the the Ford Fry culture with him, but uh, someone who I think has really jumped into the city and really embraced it. Yeah, he's uh he's gotten right in there, especially with the in the wine scene. Uh, he's studying right now for his master's uh, exam, and he's just full full bore into the wine thing and. Uh, just his, you know, his priority is to, you know, make State of Grace successful and to now grow the, the wine program into something, um, that's great in the city and, uh, you know, hospitality first, which is always our goal. Right. I mean, service, especially, I mean, it's true for any restaurant, but I mean, especially in River Oaks, people expect to be recognized. They want you to remember what their glass of wine or their cocktail is or. Oh yeah. Where their tanks parked. <laughs> yeah where the tank is uh it's like somewhere off of river Oaks boulevard right tony oh Bisbee's, yeah just down the street tony tony's tank it's a good guy is he a regular oh yeah <laughs> um do you get any i mean do you get celebrities just don't lose the do football get, game. <laughs> right yeah well i mean do you get celebrities or do you get is it pretty uh, neighborhood every every now and then um nothing i don't we're not we're not downtown near near the any of the convention centers or the i guess wherever they have concerts and stuff like that but yeah we'll, we'll get a few here and there um but nothing uh you know nothing we don't i try to we try to be very under the radar with that like i don't we don't take pictures with uh you know celebrities and our football players you know they do come in but you know i i think what's nice about state of grace is they can come in have a you know bite to eat and not, not be bugged or hounded and go on their way yeah i think that's one of the things that that's always confused me a little bit because it 
it really is one of my favorite restaurants in Houston. And inevitably, when there's national write-ups about where to eat in Houston or, or some of the the awards that get doled out, you guys aren't you guys are never on the list, and I've never quite understood why. Do you, do you want <laughs> good that? question? <laughs> I mean, do you do you want that kind of prestige, or is like as long as the diners are happy? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the end of the day, the prestige is you know is a pat on the back, um, you know, something to hang your hat on, but. It, more importantly, we just want we want to have a you know a full restaurant of happy patrons and uh, you know uh, our one of our goals is you know no customer left behind. Honestly, it sounds cheesy, but you know as long as everybody walks out of that door happy with a ginger snap cookie in their hand, um, that's all that matters. And doesn't the prestige is is a I mean something great, but whatever. Right. You you have won multiple Culture Map uh, Tastemaker Awards for Saturday. Yeah, so exactly. If nothing else, we're we're with you on this journey. Got it, got it. I'm cool with that. Uh, and then Ford is opening a new restaurant uh, here two. in Houston. Right, two in the two on the same. Yeah, with the same parking lot. Correct. Uh, Superica, a Tex-Mex restaurant. Have you eaten at one of the at the Superica in Atlanta? Oh yeah, multiple times. Okay, good. What can you what can you tell us about it? Because I, I know there's always going to be some skepticism about, even though Ford's a native Houstonian, like a Tex-Mex from Atlanta coming to Houston. Right, which is the complete opposite. Uh, it's it's fantastic. And uh, Kevin Maxey, the culinary uh, director that does, oversees the Tex-Mex, is also from Texas. Um, and they put out fantastic food. And it's not, I think, I think, what I've read so far, everyone thinks it's going to be high-end, fancy Tex-Mex. It's, it's, that's the farthest from the truth. It's very casual, family-oriented, uh, just delicious Tex-Mex. I mean, would you compare it to, like, Papacitos? Like, where would you kind of slot it? Uh, the uh, As far as price or? Uh, price, atmosphere, quality of the food. And so... So if you take State of Grace and the kind of ambiance that and uh, work we put into State of Grace, they do the same thing for the Tex-Mex uh, Tex brand, Super Rica, El Felix. They put a lot of work into the feeling of the restaurant, and it'll stand aside from any Tex-Mex restaurant here uh, in the place, in the sense where the food's just fantastic. It's, I, I don't want to say chef-driven, but it's very detail-oriented and... Um, and um, Thought, thought through, I should say. Um, the food is on par with any Tex-Mex restaurant here. Um, and and then what's going to set it apart, like I said, is the ambiance and the, the feel of the restaurant. It has a really fun vibe. All right, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally shift gears on you. There are very few people in my life that I can talk baseball with. <laughs> the Astros are headed to the playoffs. You're, you're an Angels fan that yeah. came up a little bit short this year. Yeah. What do you... What what's your assessment of of your team? I mean, it's obviously they have the best player, other than Jose Altuve in baseball, with Mike <laughs> Trout, uh, who was dinged up a little bit this year. Yeah, uh, the Pujol signing looks like it's kind of an albatross. Yeah. Uh, do you have like a? Is there like a, a couple of moves you want to see them make in the off season to get them back uh, back where you want them? You know what? Honestly, so I went to a Astros game, first game this whole year been so busy uh to not not this last sunday but the sunday before that against the angels and i went into the game with my friend who's an astros fan you know it's like you know what i don't want to be a 
label that bandwagon guy, but I think it might be time to switch over to the Astros. Uh, and of course, the Angels won that game. <laughs> but uh, just when you were out, they pulled you back in. Yeah, no, I, I think I've been here long enough, uh, going on like eight or nine years, something like that. Uh, it's it's maybe time to make a switch. Uh, I love I love watching the Angels through uh, their World Series run, but I'm so far away from from that. It's hard to even it's hard to be on top of it. So I've honestly been like out of baseball because there's no interaction. So maybe maybe it'll be it'll get me back in baseball if I I start uh, watching the Astros a little more. Well, and, and I mean, let's be honest, right? The Astros are the number two seed in the American League. They look fantastic. Yeah, I think they're going to smoke the Red Sox. I'll I'll, I'll throw that out there because this is going to debut uh, the same day as the first game of the playoff series. So Astros in four over the Red Sox. I feel like that seems pretty in, reasonable. In and four? then on to Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. But. Uh, you know, I think a, a deep playoff run for the Astros would really just kind of. I'd love to see the uh, the Astros and the Dodgers in it. That would be very exciting. But uh, the Dodgers aren't looking so good. Well, and recently. the Nationals look just dynamite. Yeah, like everything about that team. Yeah. Just so, looks. but it's playoff baseball. Things can change. You know, well, how many years in a row has the wild card got to the end? <sighs> Several. Yeah. So it's anything can happen once you're in the playoffs. It doesn't really matter at that point. As long as you got some pitching, yeah, I, I know, I know. People probably aren't listening to this podcast to hear my baseball opinions, but uh, <laughs> but that is the one thing about the American League is that the Yankees, the Astros, the Red Sox, and definitely uh, the Indians have deep bullpens. So, yes, you know, if you can get five six innings out of your starter, it, it makes the game a lot shorter. And those, you know, those key at bats at the end of the game are going to probably decide these series. The uh, acquisition of Verlander, I think, was a great move. Yeah, it just gave the team a whole shot in the arm and and gave the the staff someone who is experienced. Obviously, Justin Verlander has pitched in a World Series before and and just like has that kind of not going to lose this game mentality. I think that we probably haven't seen here since uh, Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit were on the hill and Roy Oswald for that matter. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, exciting uh, October. All right, well, I think that is going to put a pin in the formal part of the interview, but. Still have the lightning round. Uh-oh. Five or, I don't know, maybe six easy questions, short answers. Okay. You ready? Uh, sure. All right. What's the first restaurant you ever worked at? In any capacity? In any of your first paycheck from a establishment that served food to was, the public. I was a dishwasher at a, I guess it was like a southwestern Mexican restaurant called Ancho's in Riverside, California. It's the worst job of my life, but I learned to respect dishwashers <laughs> every night. Very hot, sweaty, dirty. Yeah. What's the 15. first? <laughs> 15. Not bad. Yeah, 15. What's the first concert you ever saw? First concert, ACDC at the Anaheim Pond, 10th row. Your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? I got to give a lot of props to JJ Watt. All he's doing right now, uh, he's pretty inspirational for the city. But Sean Watson's on my fantasy football team, and he, oh, <laughs> he looked yeah, pretty good. Real good right now. <laughs> uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to, it has to come from a drive-through. In Tex in Houston? No, I'll, I'll you can you can you can you can go off the board. <sighs> I miss my carne asada burritos from 
um, I can't even remember the name of the place where I grew up in. in well, there's, they're all over Southern California. No, not Del Taco. <laughs> Real, <laughs> I think it was called Juanitas, uh, a uh, Mexican restaurant in our chain, I should say, that you can get fast food Mexican. Right. Speaking of tacos, where is your favorite taco in Houston? Oh, man. Um, I am. I mean, I know where it is. It's that here, question it's gets gotta everybody. It's got to be Caliente. <laughs> Um, which is probably what everybody answers, but you know, there's not, there's something great about sitting next door, having a beer and having a couple tacos. Yeah. It's a, I think Houston experience. I think that the tacos are great. I don't though. I think they're the greatest ever. No, but, uh, you know, I'm pretty, um, pretty picky about that being from Southern California, I should say, but we got a whole different style of Mexican food. That is, I think the closest though, but you can be able to sit outside and, have a beer even makes those tacos taste better. Absolutely. And then finally, uh, other than State of Grace, what's your favorite restaurant to take someone who's visiting from out of town? Oh, man. Um, someone visiting from out of town. Uh, we just had a great meal at Sochi. Uh, that's get obviously more on the higher end side. Um, we, gosh, yeah, I'm just going to go with that for now, I guess. Very good. <laughs> All right, Bobby, thank you. Thank uh, you. We can follow you on Instagram at Bobby Matos, State of Grace on Instagram at Matos. Matos, thank you. <laughs> just kidding. It's all good. <laughs> on on Instagram, uh, State of Grace TX, and of course, uh, stateofgracetx.com for all the latest menus and operating hours and the location. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, thank you. We can follow you on Twitter at Thanks, Nathan. H-Town Food Junkie. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks to 8th Wonder for sponsoring this interview. And, of course, come back next week because I'll have a new guest and all new topics to talk about. Thanks so much for listening.